welcome to episode 18 of Fitness Unfiltered. I'm Jocelyn Thompson-Rule and today I have the amazing pelvic floor physio Helen Keeble back again. Clearly I can't get enough of Helen, she's she's too good. And we discuss how Helen has adapted, how she treats her patients based around really, really interesting research on what happens to the pelvic floor during exercise. We also talk about breathing and the use of intra-abdominal pressure during lifting in particular and indeed exercise in general and also what the future looks like for research into women and training. As ever, if you enjoy the show, I would love you to leave me a review on iTunes or whatever format you're listening on. Enjoy the show. Helen, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks my dear. How are you? I'm very well. We are back here again. Only a few podcasts ago, we were chatting away. (laughs) I know. About pregnancy and labour. First of all, tell the people what you do, Helen. Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping right in, making the assumption that they've listened to the previous podcast. So tell people <laughs> what you do, my love. Oh, okay, I'll briefly explain. So my name is Helen Keeble and I work as a pelvic health physio and I have a special interest in sports and exercise. So I've been doing it for about 13 years now and yeah, just basically treating mostly women, but sometimes men as well. And mostly now anyway, women who are either professional athletes or even just your everyday normal athletes like you and I, who are just trying to get their exercise quota in for the week and just basically trying to make sure that pelvic health isn't a barrier for them. Amazing. Very cool. So you got in touch with me relatively recently. I want to say a couple of months ago now just to say that there had been some new exciting research around the pelvic floor and that we definitely needed to either talk about it at the Women in Fitness Summit or a podcast or whatever. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that, Helen? Yes, I would love to. (laughs) So, Yeah, it's actually been a really exciting time in pelvic health and sports. Well, I think so anyway. And I had basically written a course last year for physiotherapists to help upskill them in more functional assessments and rehab side of things when it comes to the pelvic floor. And I basically, within six months, had to rewrite the course three times, or not rewrite, sorry, update the course three times, just because there's so much coming out at the moment. But basically, the most interesting stuff is all around impact exercise and the effects of that on the pelvic floor, and also how our pelvic floor muscles respond to impact. It's just really interesting because it's really shaped now how I work with all my clients that I see in clinic. So either either talk us through how you had to sort of reshape the course or what's the research saying and then how have you had to adapt and change how you're either delivering that education or, or you're treating clients? So traditionally, if you had symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction, such as incontinence or leaking or prolapse or heaviness, then we would get you in, we'd assess you, and we'd primarily be looking at the flexibility of your pelvic floor, but also the strength as well. So we'd be really looking at those two things in your exercise program. So we'd be setting you Kegels or pelvic floor squeezes as alongside making sure your pelvic floor is uh, flexible (laughs) as well. So then... Fast forward to this research that has come out and there has specifically been a few studies that looked at the female pelvic floor during running 
and mm. also during jumping. Okay. And what they did is they got all of the ladies in the study to do what they call a maximal voluntary contraction. So in normal terms, that just means squeeze your pelvic floor as hard as you can. And then they measured that for every lady. And mm -hmm. then what they did via a vaginal probe is they then were able to measure the activity of their pelvic floor as they were running. Right. Um, But they're not really comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> It says in the paper it was no bigger than a tampon. So I'm hoping it actually okay. was comfortable for the ladies involved. Honestly, the things we do for research. But what they found was so interesting. So they were looking at primarily the movement of the pelvic floor and also mm. the activity of the pelvic floor. So if we focus in just on the running, for example, they found that there was really high pelvic floor muscle activity just before our heel hit the floor. So right. when looking at the movement of the pelvic floor, if, they, if you look at the same moment in time, so just before heel strike occurs, then the pelvic floor was moving hmm. down and forward. So, okay. then if, so basically what we know then is that there's a lot of muscle activity, but the muscle is moving down and forward. And when you look at the anatomy of the pelvic floor muscles, In order for the muscle to move down, that means it has to be lengthening. So there's now a bit of ongoing debate. Like a lot of research, it often creates a lot more questions <laughs> than what it's yeah. trying to answer in the first place, which is great because then, you know, things progress and we learn more. But mm. there's now a bit of a debate whether is that just simply like stretch and recoil, the muscle moving down and then back up again? Or is it like an eccentric type lengthening? We're not really sure yet exactly what it is, but we know that the pelvic floor muscles lengthen just before heel strike. And then as heel strike happened during running, you then get also mm. a lot of muscle activity and your pelvic floor muscle moved up and back. So it would lengthen upon the heel strike and then say that bit again, sorry. And then, so just before heel strike is when it lengthened. And then as you land on the foot, your pelvic floor then moves up and back. Right, okay. So it really helps to strengthen what we thought, which is the normal support in our pelvic floor sense of things is not rigid and it moves. Right. So this is really crucial. So this supports what we were thinking before in the sense that normal support in a pelvic floor sense of the term support moves and is not rigid. So if you're a lady, for example, who is worried about a prolapse or leaking when you're running, we from this immediately can say, if you're holding your pelvic floor whilst you're running, you're not going to be helping yourself. Mm, And a lot of okay. ladies I see in clinic would understandably you know, like they would be clenching because it's not a nice sensation to be leaking or having heaviness and prolapse type symptoms. So I think a lot of people would just instinctively try and clench and hold in. Mm. But actually, that is not normal behavior for the pelvic floor. So a lot of that would then strengthen the flexibility arm of what I would normally be teaching women anyway. But yeah. this just gives us a bit more strength I guess behind that whole flexibility part okay interesting god that's so interesting isn't it because you I would know. think 
the natural thing would be, you know, if, if you're experiencing leakage when you're running or whenever to then clench the whole time. Yeah, exactly. And it would feel like, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, but it would feel weird and very unnatural to kind of relax yeah. the fear of weeing or whatever. So how have you now changed, I guess, your practice and or how, how have you taken that research and how are you implementing that into your own stuff, either via, you know, patients or yeah. what you're now delivering in terms of education to other physios? Well, it was really those studies, along with a couple of other ones that looked at jumping and the jumping studies kind of confirmed what they found in the running studies. So they were, again, looking at the pelvic floor movement and activity just before jumping and as you land. Mm. And to be fair, the jumping ones were even like amazing <laughs> with the results yeah. because just to very, very briefly give you the a couple of numbers, like they did the same thing. So they got people to squeeze their pelvic floor beforehand and then use a probe to measure what automatically happens in their pelvic floor. And mm. they found on average that just before you jump, your pelvic floor muscles squeeze by 132% of your maximal voluntary contraction. Wow. So just before you go wow. to jump, there's this really big automatic pelvic floor squeeze. And then right. already I'm thinking, okay, we can't voluntarily train that. Because if I send you home with pelvic floor squeezes, the most you're going to be able to do is 100% of your maximal voluntary squeeze. <laughs> the amazing thing is on the landing part of jumping, they found on average that the pelvic floor muscles contracted by 400% of their maximal voluntary contraction. Wow. To be fair, it was the jumping even more so that got me thinking, okay, we can't be training this. Like we can't, well, mm. we can train this, but we can't be training it in the way that we are used to, which is just squeeze your pelvic floor. <laughs> just where you've got the 132%, at what point was that? So that the 400% was on landing and what was the 132% on takeoff or? It was just before takeoff. Just before takeoff. Okay, fine. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And just by means of comparison, when they were looking at how much your pelvic floor squeezed when you were running, the automatic contraction got higher the faster you ran. Okay. So if you're running relatively lightly at around seven kilometers an hour, then they found that the maximum voluntary contraction that happens automatically was at about 92%. But then if you're running a lot quicker at, say, 15 kilometers an hour, then the maximum voluntary contraction that they detected went right up to 151%. So it was really looking at these numbers from these studies that really made me think, okay, like mm. we need to be doing something slightly different here. And so that is what really got me changing how I treat my clients. So now... I try to with every single client to get them doing some level of impact as part of their pelvic floor muscle training program. So I would pretty much still always get people doing the usual short squeezes and long squeezes. Because if your maximum voluntary contraction is low, then we still need to train that to get that higher and get that stronger. Yeah. 
But now what I also try and do is get people doing some impact. So if, for example, you're newly postnatal, say you're like, I don't know, 12 weeks or something, and you know, you're kind of just getting back into things and haven't done impact for a long time, then I might just get you on doing a few stamping or stomping type drills. So you're getting mm-hmm. some impact, but it's very controlled and you know, we can count your amount of reps and time and everything like that. And then what I would do is just kind of as and when their symptoms allow, I would progress them up into more, I guess, higher impact. So going to like hopping and then jumping and then running and then skipping. But then like each part of that progression would be tailored to them. So, you know, I might make the hopping at first to be really low and really quiet and just a few reps. And then we'd kind of build that up to be high hopping and quick hopping and for longer. And so then you're working on different aspects like the endurance and stuff. Yeah. Amazing. God. And and I guess also looking at, say, the running study, for example, if at those slower speeds, there's less of a contraction, if there was leakage, that would almost stop you from going any faster and yet when you're going faster that's actually when those contraction gets greater exactly the faster you run the harder your pelvic floor is going to work so how long has it been now since you've changed over to that yeah because presumably it took you know you, you had the research and you probably you know sort of mold it over a bit and then you know like okay this is my new because you, you when we spoke before we pressed record, you said you have like a hierarchy of movement, I guess, or yeah. a continuum of movement for the pelvic floor. Like, you know, what, I guess, what was the period of time in which you, you created that? And then obviously you started rolling it out. And have you noticed like a marked difference between, you know, what you did before and what you're doing now? In the summer, it would be nearly a year, really, that I first came across it and first okay. started trying to implement it. I'd say the hierarchy of impact that I described, so starting from the stamping and stomping and going right up to skipping, like that mm. I honed more so in the last six months. So trying to pull everything together to get this, yeah, like evidence-based hierarchy, basically. But mm. I have seen a real... I've seen a real change in the clients and also the fit pros that I collaborate with as well because I've kind of passed on the information to them as well so they can use it in their exercise classes and things like that. But I think women find it really positive and some of them are a bit dubious, I think, because I, in my experience, a lot of women have been held back from doing impact and stuff if they have pelvic floor symptoms. So... Some of them are a bit dubious, Mm. but as soon as I give them a bit of encouragement, actually, they all seem to really enjoy it. And actually just doing something that is just a a bit more challenging and a bit more enabling. And ultimately, that I think is a bit more empowering because it gives them a lot of focus on what they can do rather than traditionally being told everything they can't do. Yeah, in terms of people's confidence, it like has a massive positive effect. But in terms of the pelvic floor results as well, actually, it's a good question because I could probably, there's probably, there's a study there, I'm sure, (laughs) looking back at like 
Like I was just thinking, I wonder if the ones who have got the impact training as part of their pelvic floor program get better a bit quicker or a bit stronger, a bit quicker. That's what I'd be interested to see. Or, you know, if you had sort of like similar cases, you know, kind of pre and and post, you know, you kind of integrating this work and, or is it just that they end up kind of doing more because you've encouraged them to, to do more and the piece around it being empowering and kind of giving them confidence like I just know so many women who are like yeah no no I've had had four kids can't run or I've had two kids or whatever and and it's 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 like it's just fully accepted that that's why then they cannot do all of those physical things and for me now kind of getting back into training after after maxi I just feel so alive when I am running and lifting and doing all the thing all of those things and I feel fully myself. Now granted that's this is my work and my job and yeah. you know it's very much a part of my life. But to kind of lose that and for nothing to be done would be heartbreaking. I know. I know. And I think that's what a lot of women experience and especially these days because women are exercising more in a bigger, better way. You know, I think before we used to get told that we should just stick to Pilates and swimming and yoga and more gentle forms of exercise. Whereas I think now, thankfully, because I love all the weightlifting and high intensity as well, but I think women are doing more and they want more and they're not prepared so much just to take no for an answer, which I think is Right. And actually they don't need to, and they can get back into weightlifting and training to a high level without, without damaging themselves with being safe. And even if they do have incontinence or symptoms of a prolapse, they can nine times out of 10 get that better and actually be training as much as before. Really interesting. One more thing, I guess, just around research in, in general. Like, I think it's mad that this is only being looked at now I agree <laughs> like hello what are your what are your thoughts on that I am so glad it's being looked at now but it has been such a long time coming and I just think that's just another example of the gender gap within research and sports in general did you know that 2012 was the first year that every country in the Olympic Games sent at least one female it took wow. that long for like, wow. and like, I, I know now that, you know, I was trying to think the other day, is there any professional sport that women aren't allowed to take part in? And I don't think there are anymore. You know, I think mm. the equality in sport and exercise is really like, it's come on so, so far in the last hundred years, but mm. apart from, are women still allowed to do decathlon? Oh, maybe. I, c- I could be completely wrong on that, but. Maybe there is one. I think that women are women. Now that this is me shaming myself, if I have got this right, but let me give it a quick googs, Helen. Whilst we're here, um, <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> and women do decathlon. It's contested. It's contested mainly by male athletes, while female athletes typically compete in heptathlon. So there you go. Yeah. Um, so that that's the that's the only. Um, Let's see. The only one. Yeah, I'm just now it's obviously come up with um yeah, the load of stuff. But um yeah, I think that's the only one. But it is interesting, isn't it? And and so I feel like we're on the 
we're at the start of a ton of research around women specifically in sport and in training. Like um, there's a guy who I really like called Dr. Andy Galpin, and he's looking at, I think, I don't know whether he's done the research yet or not, but he is just looking at even the difference in like kind of muscle fibers between men and women and, and just like a whole, like, you know, we can't just, again, like most of the research is done on men. And mm. it's highly likely that women are different a lot of regards. So a lot of the stuff that he's doing now is, I know that some of the re- research has already been funded and some of it hasn't as yet and is waiting for funding. But it would just be very, very interesting over the next kind of, I guess, 10 to 20 years, what that all looks like. All right. I do um, have a question actually around breathing. Breathing when you're lifting, when you are pregnant breathing when you were lifting when you are not um because I actually had a friend send me a picture of uh, sorry a video of her squatting and she was like Joss I'm a bit baffled can you just have a look and see what I'm doing you know something feels amiss and I think she'd got so used to how she breathes when she's pregnant that she had not gone back to a different type of breathing. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And yeah, just just to yeah, talk it out, I guess. Weightlifting in pregnancy, as long as there's no complications or medical conditions, then normally it's completely safe. But what we normally say is to not be lifting more than 70% of your one rep max and mm-hmm. that you're probably not going to be increasing your weight through those nine months. You know, if you yeah. can maintain what you've got, great. But there's, you know, there's no concrete evidence to say if you're lifting really, really heavy, it's really safe or or not. So the advice is no more than 70%. And in terms of your breathing, this is such a good debate that I love. Um, and I always... I asked, babes. <laughs> I know. And I always, I know I always annoy the trainers in my gym because I'm always like, why are you doing that? And they're, they're like, oh, here comes Helen again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always on them about their lifters and about their bloody belts and I'm always and they're like oh here she goes <laughs> yeah man I, I, I hear you on the belt like oh, I'm definitely I know but essentially when it comes to breathing if you are breathing out with the effort so as you're breathing if you breathe out as you come up from your squat or come up into standing from the deadlift then you are going to be helping to decrease intra-abdominal pressure. So quite simply, if you're thinking about your breathing when you're lifting and when you're pregnant, then you should, like if you want to be really safe, then you should be breathing out as you do the squat or do the deadlift. So you should be breathing out. So let's say for the squat, you should be breathing out as you're coming back up from the squat in the concentric phase. Exactly. Exactly. And exactly the same for the deadlift. So when you're down in your start position, as you stand up into upright, then you should be breathing out that like Mm -hmm. throughout the whole movement. Then obviously, non-pregnant individuals would be told to actually maintain that intra-abdominal pressure throughout the lift. Yeah. So to not breathe out, but instead to inhale, brace, hold all the way down and you only breathe out when you're at the top of the lift when you're finished. 
But that does raise a lot of questions because again, all of the breathing techniques that we know come from powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. And it was all designed for men because it was only men who were allowed to do it in the beginning. And there's Mm. not really been any research done on the effects of intra-abdominal pressure and the pelvic floor and especially the long-term effects of those on either men or women. So I always, I do always think, you know, like when you see, when you see people lifting really heavy in the gym and you can see like every single vein in their head and their neck Mm. about to pop, I kind of think, what the hell's (laughs) happening to the other end of your body? Because if that's happening at the top end, like something else is going on at the bottom end as well. And I just think, I don't know. And I know I do get it because I love lifting weights and I, I do get it that people want to push and push and lift heavy. But sometimes Mm. I just wonder at what cost. And it's not that they're doing it on purpose. I just don't think that it's been researched enough. And I don't think it's out there enough. Like a lot of the coaches and trainers that I've spoken to over the years don't know this stuff. Like they're not taught it. Mm. It's not that they're, Mm. they know it and they're going against it. It's just that it's not really out there. So if you're doing a heavy lift, do you breathe as if you were pregnant? Yeah, I pretty much always breathe out as I lift, uh, yeah, as I come up from the lift. So my my take was, because obviously classically I was taught, uh, you know, around intra-abdominal pressure uh, in terms of, of, you know, heavy lifts for safety of the spine, yeah. etc. So now my, how I would do it would be that I would focus on some breath work prior to lift prior to even warming up and then I try to continue that being as mindful as I can through through movement but when I'm doing actual lifts themselves I would particularly something like squatting or something like deadlifting I will do the the intra-abdominal pressure I'm just going to say that quietly so you don't you don't <laughs> me off too much but in between then I will try and be very, very mindful of my breathing. So I have like a hybrid <laughs> between the two. <laughs> but it works, it works. And you know, I think for some people, when they're doing what would traditionally be called bracing, you know, like creating that intra-abdominal pressure, for some people, they might be clenching their pelvic floor to help create and maintain that intra-abdominal pressure And if you've Mm. been weight training gradually and progressively, that's not necessarily going to be bad. But there are a lot of people who aren't very body aware, who without knowing it, are going to actually be bearing down when they brace. And that's the difference. Like if you're bearing down on your pelvic floor, it's, yeah, unfortunately just going to be a one-way road to an unhappy pelvic floor. But I don't think it's all doom and gloom. As long mm. as your pelvic floor is working and you're lifting weight that's appropriate to your strength, yeah, then it can be really good for the pelvic floor. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It'd be really interesting to see what the you know if there is research done on it, you know, at a later date. There hasn't as yet been any research on breathing and weightlifting and pelvic floor as yet. But mm. there was a study that came out recently, a few months ago, by Laurie Fauna, and she was looking at heavy weightlifting and prolapse symptoms in women. Okay. And very long story short, she grouped all the ladies into light, medium, and heavy lifters. 
So the light lifters were, I think it was less than 15 kilos as part of their exercise regime. The medium Mm. lifters were 15 to 50 kilos and Mm. the heavy lifters like would routinely lift more than 50 kilograms as their exercise routine. Mm. And she found that those who lifted 50 kilograms or heavier routinely mm. had the least amount of prolapse symptoms. That was just a survey, though. So there was a, it was a big sample size, like 4,000 women. So it was an amazing number, but it doesn't really mm. tell us anything else. So it doesn't tell us how they're lifting or why that might be. But there is stuff that is kind of gradually beginning to emerge that is quite promising. Because I want to make the assumption there <laughs> that if they were lifting 50 kilos or more, then they might have been doing some intra-abdominal pressure breathing, <laughs> Ellen. Well, they might be. <laughs> but. Exactly. They, they might Who knows? Be. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, it'd be so interesting to get that research done, wouldn't it? To see sort of what, ha- you know, or, you know, in something like a snatch or a clean and jerk, like, yeah. you know, what happens? It, because you, it, that's not something that, I mean, you, yeah, definitely you can, you would, you know, think about bracing at the, at the start of that, but then it's just so quick that actually it'd be really interesting to see kind of what happens within that second or two of movement. Uh, Gosh, yeah, we definitely get some research on that. And that is it because a bit like, when you're running, you know, if somebody told you to squeeze your pelvic floor every time you, you heel strike, you yeah. know, that's just impossible. And a bit, is that like the clean and jerk and all the Olympic weightlifting? Mm. And there's too much happening. Like you can't switch on your pelvic floor just as you go to jerk, you know, like there's just too much going on. Just with the Olympic lifting, it would be the same. Like you can't tell someone to switch on their pelvic floor just as they do the jerk part of the clean and jerk. Cause there's just too much happening, you know, yeah. So your pelvic floor needs to be working automatically again. And yeah. it would be so interesting to know what the hell is it doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, God, yeah. yeah. So then kind of worst case scenario with the wrong use of intra-abdominal pressure is then what prolapse is? Well, basically, with intra-abdominal pressure, the way you know if it's right or wrong is based on how strong you are. So intra-abdominal pressure can be really good if it's at the level that your pelvic floor muscles can withstand. Intra-abdominal pressure only becomes bad when it's exceeding the strength of your pelvic floor. But yeah, you'd then be looking at if your intra-abdominal pressure was really high compared to your pelvic floor strength, then you'd be looking Mm. at pelvic floor weakness, which would then lead to things like heaviness and pain and leaking and things like that. Right. Okay. And do you find that, so say, say in athletes, and I don't know, I don't know kind of what the ratio of people you treat is, but how many athletes who haven't had children Mm. do you come across with various pelvic floor issues? Loads. (laughs) Absolutely loads. Like I, I wouldn't even like to guess like loads, like it would be completely normal that a lot of women in my clinic would have never had babies before, but still have leaking or heaviness or prolapse symptoms. Wow. Okay. And then what, I guess you can't necessarily put it down to stuff, but could you, could you guess what it might be? Or like, are there any trends that you notice within that? It's a really good question, actually. And I think a lot of this stuff comes down to that just as women, we're not 
educated enough, I don't think. And it doesn't have to be anything overly complicated or anything that takes long. But, you know, I would love to see the day where we have like a self-care module or something like that at school that we just go through what the menstrual cycle actually means and how our pelvic floor muscles work and why breathing is good. Because I think a lot of the women, there's they're all really intelligent women. They're all healthy. They are, you know, they're doing their exercise, but I think it just comes down to that. They just didn't have a clue. And they'll always say to me, why did I not know this before? Because when I tell them what they need to do, it's really basic, simple stuff, but they've just never been told that before. Or they've been taught in the gym that they go to, to always like hold their breath, wear a really tight belt. Like they're doing all of these things that are really increasing their intra-abdominal pressure but then never really strengthening their pelvic floor to help counteract that. Mm, So they've almost got like crutches doing the work for them and actually never having that body control or indeed awareness themselves. Because I guess some people wear belts almost like a badge of honor, you know, like and it's just kind of like belt does not equal that you can lift heavier no it, it kind of does but a lot of people don't even know how to use the belts properly yeah. number one and also like I, I I get it at the at the very very top level that belt is going to assist you and if you're if at a competitive level you're already compromising your physical health in in one way or another through competing like you just are at those at those higher levels there there is often a cost whether it's you know at the time they're competing or later in life or or whatever but but then you just get a ton of people using belts who just don't need to at all and it's just because it's the norm at the gym and then yeah that that just kind of complete lack of self-awareness like one thing now obviously we're recording this during COVID-19 and I'm really interested in, because a lot of people, you know, uh, weight, like kettlebells, dumbbells, you can't get hold of them at the moment. We're currently in in week two of of lockdown in the UK. And so there's definitely concern around, you know, are people going to lose their strength? Because we we don't know how long this is is all going to go on for. But my kind of perspective on it is that you know, you could definitely during, you know, you can definitely do something anyway during this time. Yeah. It's not like you can't physically move at all. You can definitely do stuff. But if everybody worked, because for the most part, we are sat down in chairs. So, you know, we could all do with working on our mobility a lot more. But yeah. if people took that time to spend five, 10, 15 minutes a day working on their mobility, when they get back into the gym, let's let's say if that's in three months time. So, you know, strength their levels of strength will be lost if they haven't got a home gym or whatever that they can continue their training but actually what they can do in terms of kind of you know really making the foundation solid improving their movement through mobility and then getting back into the gym with reduced strength over time once they build that strength back up surely they will be better athletes purely from having improved their mobility and then having to build that strength back up rather than going back into the gym with improved mobility and trying to hit the same weights they were hitting before, which which would be a bad idea because yeah. they'll have only have had improved range and you can't just hit that with 
what you were lifting before. So I kind of feel like over the other side of the other side of this, people will be moving better and be stronger as well if they're going to be smart with, you know, how they how they use this time. I completely agree. And another thing to add in about using this time could be to try to think about their pelvic floor and can they actually Mm. squeeze their pelvic floor? Can they fully let it go? And if they've ever had symptoms of any pelvic floor trouble, like really working on the pelvic floor, because it takes doing pelvic floor squeezes every day for a few months before it really shows a big increase in strength, like any other muscle group, really. And obviously, we don't need any fancy equipment or anything for the pelvic floor. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Come back with power pelvic floors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it's just, it's just whether it's something as simple as breathing, whether it's something as simple as, you know, paying attention to your pelvic floor, which is, you know, also in that, in that breathing piece as well. Fundamentally, it comes down to that body awareness and paying attention to your own body and what is what is happening in it because you can only ever get so far before you break down if you don't work on those on those basics and you know unfortunately as you've said most people just don't know they have no idea what to even think people don't even think about their pelvic floors for women weren't even thinking about their periods for a long time um, or they certainly were when it, when it came along, but it was just something that was inconvenient or something that they tra- tracked to, you know, log when they were trying to conceive. But outside of that, it's kind of like, no, gosh, do you know what? There's there's so much information, like the information you have about yourself. Like we just ourselves as our own little study is like lifelong, but you know. I'm really easy. It's just about paying attention that I just don't think we are encouraged or necessarily taught to do. You're right. There's a lot we can unleash from within. Yeah, 100%. Um, Oh gosh, Helen, this has been so, so interesting. And I'm kind of really excited for, I guess, what's going to unfold over the next 10 years, the next 20 years in terms of, of research. And I think that I kind of always go on about the fact that, you know, training is training and nothing's new and, you know, the fundamentals are what matters. And, but actually I think all of these finer details for women specifically will make, make just such huge jumps in, in how we progress in terms of, of our training and the, and the, you know, results that we get now, it still has to come down to, as we've just said, somebody going, right, I'm going to take the time to work on myself, get to know what works for me. And that does take time and it does take patience and it's not necessarily um, that sexy. But, you know, as you say, like just kind of unlocking all of this information that we have about ourselves, reintegrating it back into what we're doing is huge. Like it's just, yeah, it's just kind of mad. And I get it. I get why there hasn't been a lot of a lot of research thus far but you know that is changing now and yeah it's just a really exciting kind of time to 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 see kind of how that how that pans out over the next 10 20 years definitely i am glad i'm going to be hopefully around to see it yeah man you're going to be leading the way like i told you so to do some research at some point i do want to do a research masters at some point just add it to the list though you know there's so many things 
I'd love to. I'd love to. Oh, Helen, as ever, you are a total dream. And then we will have so we will have the Women in Fitness Summit at some stage this year. It is definitely not going to be moved. We will have one in 2020, but it's definitely likely to be the autumn. Uh, so that's definitely happening. And then um, I will, as soon as I know the date, we will get it in and get you booked in to just release your knowledge on the people. And then, you know, actually maybe even more research, you know, from then. But actually everything's on hold right now, so maybe not. But <laughs> I know. Although maybe you never know. Like these things take <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Helen, thank you so much, my love. Oh, you dream. You. It's always so lovely chatting to you. Oh, bless you. And also, where can people find you, Helen? You can find me online. So either on Instagram at Helen Keeble Physio or on my team page, which is phphysiotherapy.com. Amazing. Super star. Hit Helen up. She is a dream. And when we come out of this isolation thing, go and get yourselves checked because it matters, especially those of you who lift, especially if you haven't had any children. Doesn't matter. Get your shit checked. The end. (laughs) 